at the start of the week and plenty to hear from the radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. Morning, Cork Simon Outreach. Who do we have? How are you? You okay? Good, good. See you later. We just check in, make sure they're alive is the most important thing. Make sure they don't need any medical help. And I think that's what's, um, I suppose, interesting and complicated about the legacy of the Irish Civil War. On the one hand, you have people who want to commit these events to, um, to oblivion. But on the other hand, you have a lot of people who can't actually do that. So thank heaven we are living in Rathgar. Uh, the solid, quiet refinement of Rathgar. Where we have our evening dinners. Where we never hear of shinners. And even those who can't afford it have a car. And we'll start in the afternoon. Lorna wanted to surprise and thank her best friend, Mairead. So Ray Darcy obliged and called her live on air. Hello. Hello, Mairead. Yeah. How are you? Have you been expecting a call? I have, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, who have you been expecting a call from? Oh, Lorna Kassan was arranging something to be delivered today. Was she? Oh, Lorna, life. Lorna, no. yes, I know Lorna. I know Lorna. Actually, Lorna's on the other line. Would you say hello to her? Okay. Hi, Mairead. Hi, Lorna. How are you? Yeah. Surprise. Uh, not to get between the two friends, but uh, I'm Ray Darcy, Mairead, and you're live on Radio 1. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. So, so uh, the reason you're on Radio 1 is because your friend, Lorna Kassan, nominated you for a big Christmas thank you, you see. How thank you, f- you, Lorna. How do you feel about that? I'm mortified. Mortified, right. She she told you to be by the phone because what? Because... I was expecting a delivery for her. Yes, yes. Because that's the type of thing that friends do for other friends, isn't it? It is. It is, yeah. Now, are you sitting down? Do you want to get comfortable there? Because I have an email uh, that Lorna wrote about you to read out to you and to everybody listening. Okay. Okay, sit down there now. Get yourself comfortable. You're okay, Lorna, you are? Yeah, I'm great. You're, you're great, yeah. Well, you know what's happens next because you wrote the email. Um, okay, so here we go. Uh, dear Ray, in many ways, I have always known that my best friend, Mairead, will be there for me in the difficult moments. You see, we have history. She lived through the lane. Our parents were very good friends. Uh, I, not so secretly, begrudged her Santa gift of a dress-up nurse's outfit at our dad's Christmas <laughs> party when she was six and I was seven. She lent me clothes and juicy tubes Lip gloss in her teens. She didn't mind when I bleached two strands of blonde into her hair at the height of the Spice Girls, only to realise they weren't exactly of even width when we washed the bleach out. Uh, she dragged herself through a serious hangover to ensure that we made our one-way flight to Belgium at the start of our interrailing trip in our early 20s. She stood outside the church for 30 minutes on a blustery day, ready to throw rose petals at me when I got married, so the photo should look amazing. What can I say? I was 24 and had notions. You did. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't even moan when I told her I was moving abroad and selling my house when she'd only just bought her house around the corner from me. She sends me regular supplies of Tato, Lion's Red Tea Bags, Pringles and Cadbury's Chocolate and never misses my children's birthdays. And then, in these last few months, she excelled, even by her usual very high standards. You see... In September, she opened her house to me when I gave her five hours notice that I was arriving as my dad was sick. She listened to my worries and fears. She held my hand. She wiped my tears. 
She fed me caramel freddos when I couldn't swallow anything else. A mere 20 days later, she collected me during the night from the hospital car park the night my dad died. She got back out of bed when I couldn't sleep. She made up spare rooms and got in favourite breakfasts when my husband and children arrived desolate and inconsolable for his funeral. She listened to and advised on my attempts to write a eulogy. She stood at the back of the church and sent me strength through her thoughts. That night, when it was all over, she took out a bottle of wine from the fridge and poured us two glasses. The morning we left, she told me her door is always open to us and she meant it. She deserves so much more than a thank you and would never even think of herself as exceptional, but she is. These last three months have been awful and she made them more manageable. I will never, ever be grateful enough. Uh, Thanks, Lorna. So, Lorna, first of all, sorry about your dad. Um, Thanks a million, Ray. Because it's it's still quite recent and it was quite sudden. Um, Really sudden, really sudden. And, and Mar- very unexpected. And Maraid was there for you. Absolutely. Yeah. How do you feel about that, Maraid? Oh, I'm just surprised. There's no need for this at all. Say again. There's no need for her to do this at all. There's every need, you know. I mean, Maraid, I, I don't think you realise what a special person you are. I mean, I feel very privileged to have such an amazing friend. Stop, stop. Ah, stop. Was there ever a more Irish response to anything? That's lovely. The great Maraid and a very grateful Lorna from the Ray Darcy Show. And on today with Claire Byrne, Baltic conditions and weather warnings in place for the whole country. Alan O'Reilly of Carlo Weather was talking to Claire in the morning. So we've had the National Emergency Coordination Group meeting and we heard that temperatures could drop as low as minus 10 overnight. Where was the coldest place in the country last night? It got down to minus 8.9 degrees at Spring Hill Castle, which is near Broadford in County Limerick. So minus 8.9 was the lowest test temperature station that I saw this morning. But several stations got down to minus 6, minus 7 degrees. But it did vary a lot from, from area to area and... Some areas did only drop down to minus two or minus three degrees in the southeast. But actually it got cooler this morning. My station dropped to minus three after 9 a.m., which is quite unusual. Um, And with that fog persisting, it's still very, very cold. Temperatures still widely below freezing with the freezing fog persisting. And Metairn have actually just issued a new status orange freezing fog warning for a number of counties, um, which comes into operation now at 12 noon until midnight tonight. Um, There's quite a large list of counties. I'm not sure if you want me to read them. No, I see it. I have it here. I have it here in front of me. Um, And we'll go through them. Carlo, Dublin, Kildare, Kilkenny, Leash, Longford, Louth, Meath, Offaly, Westmeath, Cavan, Donegal, Monaghan, Clare, Limerick and Tipperary. So that's dense freezing fog in places and people will have seen that uh, around the place over the last couple of days. That, That can be particularly dangerous, Alan. Yes, it can indeed. It leads to very treacherous conditions. Um, even this morning, I went out with my car, didn't look to have any frost on it, but a closer inspection, it was encased in a, in a glass of sheet of glass, really black ice. And that's what freezing fog can do. It, it basically turns anything that it touches to uh, to ice. So freezing fog in particular is very hazardous conditions. And it varies a lot from location to location. I'm actually looking at my window now in Tullow and I've got blue skies here. 
but I can see from my webcam just five kilometres down the road that it, that's dense freezing fog. So people might be travelling from one location to another and, and find that the conditions change very, very quickly. Yeah, I know a lot of people get in touch with you about the weather on social media and they're giving you very different accounts of what they're seeing, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it was interesting. A lot of issues in Kerry over the weekend with freezing uh, conditions where ice fell and it turned everything into a skating rink. Um, unfortunately, I have people living in old homes that are telling me there's ice on the inside of their windows this right. morning. Uh, yes, wanting to know when it's going to thaw. So, you know, it, it, it really does depend on where you are. We mm. also have some showers now just approaching the uh, south and east coast and some of the west coast. And if they do fall, they may not fall as snow, funny enough, but what they do fall to will freeze. So that can lead to very local treacherous conditions. So it really does vary a lot from location to location. But um, an awful lot of worried people wondering how long this is going to last because I think maybe the heat and build are starting to weigh on people's mind I or so. maybe even how much fuel they have in, in stock. And what's the answer to that question? The answer is up until Saturday. It looks cold right up until Saturday now. It does look like we'll see a return to mild, but possibly very wet and windy weather Sunday night into Monday. Now, the weather models are not in agreement. There's still a small chance, an outside chance, that the cold weather could persist a little bit longer. But most of the weather models do show a turning back to milder conditions. However, it could be short-lived as well, Claire. So that's another thing to keep an eye on. Now, I'm not saying we're going to go back into another deep freeze, but we could see temperatures drop back next week, even if we do see a brief mild uh, change. But certainly, it, you need to prepare for a cold week right up until Friday, Saturday, um, with very little thaw, maybe getting up to two, three, four degrees at most by day, but freezing each night. And a small chance of some sleet and snow in the south as well tonight. Um, there's a band of kind of rain that's going to move up and maybe just catch parts of Cork and Kerry. And again, even if it doesn't fall as snow, it will freeze again there tomorrow. Mm-hmm. People will wonder why, well, I'm wondering why when we see these showers coming in, they're rain showers, but we're in sub-zero temperatures. Yes, the Irish Sea and the, the oceans are much, much warmer. So the, the near the coast, um, basically the air is modified by the by the warmer sea. So, you know, even a couple of kilometres in, in land can make a difference. I know in Dublin there was a few people reported um, rain, you know, in, in some parts of Dublin and only one or two kilometres it was snow. So it really can make a difference. Um, but yeah, temperatures along the west coast um, are up to three or four degrees at the moment, whereas, you know, in Limerick it's still minus eight. So that'll tell you how how much of a difference it can make being that little bit inland. Now we're going to talk about uh, air pollution in in just a moment with my next guest. But BBC Northern Ireland have been reporting that there's text alerts going out to people in some parts of Tyrone and Derry because of high air pollution. Readings of level 10 being the highest are, are recorded. Why is the cold snap, Alan, leading to this, to more air pollution? Yeah, well, it's a combination of very little wind, fog, and obviously people burning fuel to try and stay warm. Um, so there's just not enough movement of air, really, especially fog. And, uh, you know, it can make the air just hang there. Um, so I, I was looking at the air quality website and you can see some areas have very pure air quality. And, and you, you kind of can almost taste the smoke in an urban area on a, on a night like that. And if people remember back to the, you know, maybe if they're watching the Crown TV show, The Great Fog, back in, in the UK many years ago, um, and obviously less people burning smoky fuel now helps things but still when people are trying to stay warm and you have the fog and low winds it's a recipe unfortunately for poor air in urban areas. And you've seen some high readings around the country have you? Yes, Cavan Town uh, was up to 7 rating, uh, Longford Town was up to 8 
Um, I also saw that Tralee, unfortunately, was up to eight as well. So there has been some some areas, unfortunately, that on that airquality.ie website have, have been reporting some poor air quality this morning. Alan O'Reilly there from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Ryan was dreaming of the citrus sunshine of Sicily on a freezing winter's day. White Lotus fans will be very keen. To, it's the final episode uh, dropped last night. I think it's been definitely one of my favourite series of the year. Season two. Not so much season one. Season two. Loved it. Loved. And Sicily, which I've never been to. I've never been to Sicily before. Wow, it just looks so... Now, of course, they've shot it in such a way, but so sumptuous. God, the sea and the cocktails and even the breakfast looks lovely in the mornings. Oh, my, the balcony and the linen and the sun and the style. Oh, my goodness. In the middle of winter, looking at that, thinking, gosh, what am I doing here? I need to be there. Why, indeed. And Yvonne Farrell was listening to Ryan and called from beautiful Sicily. I am well, and I think I'm probably a little bit warmer than you are. Where are you? <laughs> I am in the southern tip of Sicily, the <gasps> southeastern coast oh, of only, Sicily. Uh, this morning, are you, are you, I moved uh, here in January. What? Why? Yeah. <laughs> so, um... I met my now Italian husband uh, five years ago mm-hmm. on Match.com, I might add. Good on you. <laughs> and uh, on our first date, one of the things that we talked about was a shared plan, not shared together, but we had separate plans to retire and live somewhere warm, uh, move somewhere warm, live a life in shorts and flip-flops, uh, I think was how we put it. And uh, anyway, we ended up falling in love and making that plan uh, happen together. So we're here. We're in Sicily. We moved in January. We both retired last summer and and here we are. So you, you retired from what profession? Teaching. I was a primary school teacher um, for 37 years. So it was... It was my first passion, uh, and I guess now Sicily is my second. But uh, yeah, I had a fantastic career in teaching. And had I mean, that was a very personal question. Had you been married before, or had you another life? Yes. Or oh, I see. Okay. Yes, so t- so. I had uh, both. Fabrizio and I had both been married previously. Um, I have two sons, and Fabrizio has two daughters. Uh, so yeah, so now we're we're a melded family. <laughs> You've that lovely blended family going on, and uh, that's yeah, a that's a big move. What yeah. did the what did your kids think about your decision to head off to Sicily? Uh, I suppose it's kind of a bit of role reversal because usually it's the kids <laughs> that have, that head off. <laughs> True enough, <laughs> and leave the empty nest. Yeah. So I do that instead. So uh, they're fantastic. They're really right. supportive about it. I think they're happy to have a gasp in Sicily. You know. So, for sure. For sure. Um, it's also yeah. it's, it's also lovely that you had that lovely second go, if you will, um, at it all, and in, in such it's an exotic amazing, way. Yeah, Ryan. yeah. You found happiness. Yeah. It's amazing. We pinch ourselves like we're just so grateful. Um, yeah, to have made this life together here, it's fantastic. Now, I, really fantastic. I was talking about the TV show White White Lotus, and and just yeah. Sicily comes is it's based in Sicily. This uh, this season in a hotel, and I don't know where the hotel is or what have you. But my God, I've, I've never wanted to to visit a place more since I started watching it. <laughs> it's set in Taormina, okay. which is uh, north of Catania. And it is sensationally beautiful because the sea is amazing, but there's also the backdrop of Mount Etna, uh, which is, Mount Etna is is an active volcano on the island. And a much loved, like, piece of the, you know, of the, 
the feel of this place. Like mm-hmm. Sicilians are passionate about about Mount Etna. Um, and you kind of can't help but be captivated, you know, when you see her, they call it, they would never say it. Mm. <laughs> she's always her. Um, but yeah, she's beautiful. And um, Fabrizio, my husband, like used to tease me about like the Dublin mountains. I'd be saying, <laughs> we go for a walk in the Dublin mountains. He'd be like, Yvonne, like, they're not mountains, like they're hills. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> when I see Mount Etna, I kind of understand yeah. why why he thought that, you know. Yeah, that's like, a so Paul, it's like it's, Paul Hogan, that's, that's not a real mountain. Um, the, the, yeah, yeah. We, exactly. we, we show you the real. And are you you're you're are you retired still, or are you are you doing a bit of work over there now, or is it just? So a sort we of... have yeah, we've bought a house and we are restoring it oh, at lovely. the moment. We are renovating our house and we are uh, going to open um, kind of a luxury B and B next year. Uh, that's kind of adult only, kind of escape from from the madness of of life and the busyness of life. Um, just yeah, quiet space for people to come and relax. And uh, we've a little Irish twist, uh, I guess, because it'll be very. We wanted to be a Sicilian experience, but uh, one of the things we've done in the last little while is we've we've sewn a lawn of shamrock under oh. the olive trees, Ryan. Okay. So on. to me, that's kind of like the perfect symbol of our Irish Italian. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, it, it, twist or combination. Yeah, you're so combining. Shamrocks under the olive trees. Retiring to Sicily, I'm in. Yvonne Farrell from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And on the live line, remembering Jimmy O'D and Harry O'Donovan and taking a swipe at snobbery. Yesterday morning on Bowman Saturday, uh, Sunday, 830 he played again. It's a great, great track. It's from the wonderful Jimmy O'Dea. Now, Jimmy O'Dea, I acknowledge, he died in 1965, but he was the pantomime. He was a pantomime dame and a great actor, great comedian, uh, Molly Malone. And he had a partnership with Harry O'Donovan. And uh, as John said yesterday, Harry O'Donovan as a songwriter, um, Harry was involved in the gaiety and the Olympia and he was a producer. Uh, Jimmy O'Dea would have been known as Biddy Mulligan, the pride of the coom. But uh, John made a point that Harry O'Donovan, as a very whip-smart songwriter, was in the same league as Noel Coward and uh, Cole Porter. And he played this song. It's called Thank Heavens, We Live in Ratgar. And uh, it's about snobbery in Dublin. Now, it's written in the 1950s. It's 70 years ago. Listen carefully, because a number of our listeners heard it and they said to themselves, has anything changed? Has anything changed at all? In these days of agitators, isms, schisms and dictators, when one never knows whom one is talking to, when we've princes picking winners and we've plumbers at golf dinners, it's so difficult to really say who's who. Even at our rugby dances, one's beset by vulgar glances and our finer sensibilities are shocked. Upon my soul, I'm not romancing. We are more danced against than dancing. And the flappers come and tell you they're half-cocked. So thank heaven we are living in Rathgar. Uh, the solid, quiet refinement of Rathgar. Where we have our evening dinners. Where we never hear of shinners. And even those who can't afford it have a car. There are some quite decent suburbs, I am sure. Oh, Rathmines is not so bad, or Terenure. 
Uh, we've heard of spots like Inchicore, but really don't know where they are. For thank heavens we are living in Rathgar. Someone must live in Kilmainham, so it's hardly fair to blame them. And in Dartry they are almost civilised. But in Fairview, goodness gracious, fellows tennis in their braces. In Drumcondra, all their shirts are fubanized. Although it's worth relating, it's really devastating. At Ben Doyle, I saw my butcher in the ring. What with cinemas unsightly, and the gaiety gone twice nightly, it's no wonder that we are proudly forced to sing. That, thank heavens, we are living in Rathgar. The solid, quiet refinement of Rathgar. In Kilester, they eat cockles, and those fearful things, pig's knuckles. But you never heard of tripe in Grosvenor Square. <laughs> those accents on the north side, quite appalled. But they never get beyond Roth Mines Town Hall. They've so many kids in Kimmage that they say life's just a scrimmage. Oh, I'm tired. I'm going to the battery to have one. So thank heavens we are living in Rathgar. And then Linda spoke to Joe. Does snobbery still exist? It does, but not the way it used to. Okay. Um, younger people especially are nowhere near as snobby about tradesmen and things like that because they actually look at it and go, you know what, at least they've got a steady income. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, I have a friend of mine who's a barrister who had a child and he's, he's going to get a trade. He can go into law afterwards, but he's getting a trade first. At least that way he'll always have an income. And you've worked, you tell us, you've been working as a cleaner for 30 years, but the attitude yeah. of snobbery is still there. Would, yeah, you, would, would you get the just a, you're just a cleaner attitude? Yes, yeah. Not everybody. I mean, there's some people that just, it just sort of, so what? Uh, and there's other people that it's, oh, well, you're just a cleaner, you're... Not worth my attention. And, you know, fair enough. And you, is this offices or homes? Where would you get the... Mainly in homes. They'd look down at you? Yeah. Wow. You know, I've been invited as a guest to a party and somebody's known I'm a cleaner. They've come up to me and sort of, well, shouldn't you be clearing the glasses? And I'm sort of, well, I'm here as a guest. Um... And I actually had it where I was talking to somebody and somebody came up and t- you know, ordered me to start clearing the glasses up. Good God. And the person I was with, who was very upper middle class, highly looked up to in the neighbourhood, sort of turned around and said, you know, it shows your lack of breeding. She said, you never assume somebody is at somebody's home for anything other than a guest. She was, you know, horrified. Now, the poor woman that spoke to me was totally mortified because he was somebody who she looked up to talking to me because I got on very well with her and was obviously very annoyed that the woman had been rude to me. And then you so, had an instant where you, where you came in front door of a house and someone said to you, that's not for the likes of you. Yeah, it was many years ago and I had the keys to the house, always went in the front door and his sister was staying with him and she sort of, you should be round at the tradesman's entrance. And he just oh, burst out laughing and looked at her and went, what do you want to do, come down the chimney? 
Right. And that, you know, so even within a family, you can get differences. And with your accent, you've obviously spent some time in England, have you, Linda? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So compare and contrast. We we know class is very is very dominant in in the UK. Uh, very snobbery dominant. is much more blatant in England. Before I moved over here forty odd years ago, I had a very North London accent. Okay. And that immediately that was my class. I was working class. Now I go back and they they can't quite place my accent. And you can see the confusion because they don't know where to put me. <laughs> and I've actually had people come up to me and go, where did you get your accent from? Mm-hmm. You know, so that they can sort of um, place me. Yeah. You know, working class, middle class, upper class. So I think, yeah, in the UK there's... Snobby is much more blatant. Well, that's Linda on the live line with Joe Duffy. Now, biting cold weather and homeless services and their attempts to get rough sleepers off the streets in freezing temperatures. Brian O'Connell was reporting from Cork in the morning. Brian, there are many reasons why we have rough sleepers. Yes, good morning, Clara. Poor mental health, addiction, mistrust of service providers. And then, of course, we have the lack of adequate housing supply, rising rents, the energy crisis. All of them are adding uh, to the issues at present. So as temperatures dropped, local authorities and homeless service providers scrambled in recent days to try and find places, often not a bed, just perhaps a space indoors, to try and get all rough sleepers uh, inside. And as you said, over the weekend, just after 6am, as temperatures were hitting uh, minus two, three degrees. I met with Noreen Toomey and the Cork Simon Outreach team. So they would go out most mornings to check on rough sleepers. And are we talking here about people who are visible, perhaps sleeping in doorways, for example? Some are visible. Some are staying hidden in parts of the city. Some are in squats, tents, uh, huts, doorways. Um, the, the team check to make sure they're OK. They give them extra clothing to try and encourage them indoors. It can take days, weeks, months, sometimes even years to get someone to engage in service. Services. So part of the role here is a trust building one. And for that reason, Claire, I held back at times as the team engaged with people perhaps they hadn't met before. Although, as you hear, I did talk to two rough sleepers. Now, we began, as I said, just after 6am, a bitterly cold morning. And I was with Noreen Toomey. So we start at 6am in the morning and we do the kind of inner city area and city suburbs checking for anybody who's sleeping out in a tent, sleeping bag, anybody at all who's sleeping rough. Freezing cold morning here. And there are still people outside on the streets. Unfortunately, there's always going to be a few who can't go in for various reasons. Um, today, we'll see who we meet out and take it from there, I suppose. I can see across the road here in a commercial premises, there's somebody lying in a, in a doorway with a sleeping bag. Morning, Cork Simon Outreach. Who do we have? How are you? You OK? Good, good. See you later. We just check in, make sure they're alive is the most important thing. Make sure they don't need any medical help. Why um, is it that somebody doesn't want to go indoors a lot of people would be would have their own personal reasons a lot of people would have trauma and they might not want to visit services due to that they might have addiction issues a lot of people unfortunately are very used to sleeping rough yeah it's their lifestyle and as much as we try and get them inside as much as the city council tries to get them inside some people are so used to it that it's just it's a way of life for them we're just outside pennies on patrick street and we're just about to go check on our rough sleeper that's better down at the door 
We can see ahead of us is somebody with a couple of sleeping bags and duvets over them. Okay, I'm just gonna leave a hat and gloves here next to you. So look, you can help yourself, mm. they're brand new. So that's someone who very definitely doesn't want to engage. No, no, he's been there for about, I'd say, close to a year. Um, he doesn't want anything to do with us. He doesn't talk to us. He doesn't lift the sleeping bag off of his face. A lot of people don't trust services. They don't trust workers. Um, and even though he wants nothing to do with us, it's still really important that we try and build a relationship with him. Sometimes that could take six months, three months, a year. People do eventually see that we're trying to help them. We see a lot of presentations over Christmas, you know, a lot of people might have family issues, a lot of people might just not want to spend Christmas alone, which is a big thing. And that's what we're here for. We're here all through Christmas, 24 hours a day. So when you went out with Noreen there, it sounded, Brian, like you met people pretty much straight away. Yes, exactly. I mean, the numbers uh, during the summer would spike, but within a couple of minutes of starting, they'd engage, as you heard there, with two people on Patrick Street, Main Street and Cork City Centre. So we carried on then through the city and we met like many people over I think 15, 16 people in total some they knew some they'd only met for the first time and then bearing in mind the temperature was still not above freezing they went to different locations they try and build up trust try and encourage people to come in and some people were hidden from view there were several miles outside the city there were in areas overgrown with bushes I don't want to identify particularly where they are but uh, I've put a number of these locations together in this clip Claire where we went across fields up hills and really off the beaten trap to locate, in this case, four rough sleepers who were uh, sleeping in tents in recent nights. So just across the road, there's a green tent. We're obviously still very city centre. Um, so we're just going to go check it and see if there's anybody in it and see if we know them and we can help them in any way. So the tent is erected on the footpath. People getting to work, heading for the train station, walking past it. Morning, Cork Simon, outreach. Anybody in the tent? We have uh, sleeping bags. If you're cold, we can get... So that's someone you hadn't met before? No, no, we haven't met him before. He's in the tent with his partner. He's from a different county. We just want to let him know this is who we are. I did hear him saying one of the reasons why he is homeless, drugs was an issue with yeah. him. Yeah, he said he's trying to get away from the, the drug use in the county that he's from. So there is a tent up in the corner of the walkway near the... There's a big, large patch of grass there. And there's a tent in the corner on the left and there's a lady that we know in it. Um, she's been using homeless services for about a year or two now. About a half a mile into the park, um, we have a tent. It's up in a very, very, very high slope. It's just coming up to a quarter to eight, so we've been out about an hour and a half at yeah. this stage. You've engaged with how many people? Um, Eleven. It's pitch black dark. It's very icy and very cold. As you can see, there is a settlement up top of the hill. That was there yesterday afternoon. Now we were told by members of the public that it's been there every night for the last five or six weeks. We were just walking along an arrow patch here, walking up this hill, really out of the way and remote. And we can see ahead of us a blue tarpaulin. And as you said, I'll hang back a little bit because this is your first time engaging with this person. Good morning, morning, Simon. He had his tent and then he had a tarpaulin stretched yeah. over it um like i said earlier it's a way of life for some people yeah. um and they become very very experienced like sometimes it's just ingenious locations where they're out of yeah. um, harm's way they're away from members of the public who can um, irritate them or, or be at them and they're they're safe and they're warm yeah. you know so that's where he's staying yeah and brian got to talk to two people sleeping out in the cold 
we went to a park area after 7am and in there I met with two people who were sleeping there quite long term and even with these weather changes they felt safer in the park they told me than anywhere else. Now I met both the men in different areas of the park just as they were waking up. How did you manage to stay warm last night? My sleeping bags. So you've got one, two sleeping two bags. Sleeping bags. You've got a woolly hat. hat. Yeah, that's it. And you sleep here last night? Yeah, there's other fellas sleeping in doorways. That's rough. I mean, it's all rough, but that's really rough. You Did you actually that's... sleep last night? Yeah. How long are you sleeping out, do you mind me asking? Uh, five years. Five years? Five years, yeah. You get to learn how to survive outside. You just acclimatise, I suppose. You acclimatise, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You bedded down here last night? Yeah, 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 yeah. How did you manage to stay warm? No, but I've been sheltered from the wind. And, yeah. um, and that's a big thing. Around the place, the, you can see the frost are pretty crisp and all that. Like, you know, um, I noticed the cold, all right. I thought I'd plan maybe a second bla- another bla- an extra blanket if it carries on like this, like, you know, tonight, you know. But anyway. You're not tempted to go indoors? The assignment people have been around. Yeah. It is good to have the option if you need it. I mean, there's talks of it dropping to minus two, three, four. I can heck all it. Will you? Yeah, no problem. Do you have to watch yourself when you're sleeping out? Uh, well, if you're sleeping out, you kind of sleep with one eye open. Um, literally, you know, you're always on the watch for what might happen. And for you, have you been offered a place that's right for you? Um, I'm currently doing my own thing, but I may okay. go that route perhaps in the future, perhaps. But I'm currently doing my own thing. Uh, you know, uh, I haven't... Like years with him yet, like you know. Or you strike me as the fellow who likes a bit of solitude. Uh, yeah, sometimes, perhaps, yeah, but uh, sometimes not as well. Um, well, listen, stay safe, stay warm if you can, as as, as warm as you can, given how cold it is. All right, yeah, thank you very much. Brian O'Connell from today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Ryan Tuberty was talking to Dr. Shiafra Aiken about her book, Spiritual Wounds, looking at the civil war from the perspective of the people who wrote about their personal experiences in the years afterwards. I was watching you uh, as one of the contributors on the Irish Civil War documentary last night. Congratulations. It's a very beautiful piece of work. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And there's two more parts to come as well. So um, I think it's just it's just so well put together and it's telling a story, I suppose, that a lot of people have heard about but maybe don't know the ins and outs of so I think it does a really good job of presenting the complexities of the Civil War. Well that is the, the if, I, if I may the terrible beauty of a, of a commemoration like this because we have to go back into uh, the history books and bring it to life again in some ways and that's what this documentary endeavours to do. Do we, do we need to hear more about the Irish Civil War? Do we need to look at it with fresh eyes? And also generationally Uh, Are we looking at it in a very different way than we might have 50 years ago? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think the thing with the Civil War is that it's always had this really turbulent legacy and it's been associated with silence, with being unspeakable and particularly with trauma and, as you say, intergenerational trauma. And what, what I'm interested in, actually, is that if we go back to before the conflict even broke out, mm. Um, in, in May 1922, the pro and the anti-treaty forces um, united trying to prevent civil war and they actually issued a statement in May 1922. And one of the, th- the things they said is they wanted to avoid civil war because they wanted 
to avoid the greatest calamity in Irish history and a calamity that would leave Ireland broken for generations. So they were already fearful about the impact on later generations before the conflict actually broke out. And I think that's a huge part of what's interesting about the, the I suppose, the, the legacy of silence associated with the Civil War. It, it kind of taps into ideas of Civil War internationally as much as it's a reflection of the events themselves, because the events themselves, obviously some of the events were terribly horrific, terribly difficult, comrades fighting against comrades. But there is this much wider narrative of how come it was seen as unspeakable before it even happened. It was anticipated that way. Um, so there's a few ways to look at that trauma. So on the one side, we, ha we have that idea of collective trauma, how it was conveyed as a trauma. And then we have the other side, the medical side too, that there were um, some participants and revolutionaries who suffered psychologically um, because of their activities and how was that understood in a medical context. So there, there's a lot to unpack there. Loads to go, places to go. Let's. Uh, I'm just trying to kind of taking a note of all the things you've been saying. And one of them is uh, that expression, legacy of silence. Um, I suppose given how atrocious is the probably word you might choose it was in terms of the atrocities committed on both sides, um, in some ways, people just want something that horrible, much like the famine in generation before, to just disappear. When you had a trauma like that, you know, whether it's in your family or in your country, I suppose collectively you just want it to go away and we can just get on with it. Yeah, and that was the attitude of a lot of people. And we even see it a lot in the doll. There's a lot of calls to forget what is painful. Let us remember what's heartening and, and inspiring. But I think there's, there's a paradox there, Ryan, because if you're telling people to forget something, you're drawing more attention to it. You're highlighting it in another yeah. way. And a lot of the times the silence isn't actually silence. It's statements of silence. It's vocalizing silence and drawing more attention to what is actually silent. Um, and I think that's what's, um, I suppose, interesting and complicated about the legacy of the Irish Civil War. On the one hand, you have people who want to commit these events to, um, to oblivion. But on the other hand, you have a lot of people who can't actually do that. And if we look at psychological studies, again, internationally looking at um, participants in various wars across the world, a lot of these studies will show that actually people who endure events like this, they actually carry a desire to tell their story mm. and to be heard and to be listened to. Um, and I think that's a huge part of the legacy that hasn't actually been, been addressed fully. Um, and that's what I'm interested in myself. I, I, I kind of started off on a project a few years ago to, to look at the, the legacy of silence and, and the trauma. And what I discovered quite quickly is that there's all of this published material, particularly from the 1920s and 1930s, written by participants that has been overlooked to date because of the emphasis on silence. So actually, there's much more material than um, we've, we've acknowledged previous to this. Um, and not only that, but veterans went to, to really great lengths to tell their stories in really creative ways to get around, I suppose, the libel cases and the 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 fear of naming somebody. Um, so um, one of the interesting things is they, they, they went into genres like autobiographical novels. They wrote about it in poetry in places maybe that historians don't usually look. And that's what one of the reasons why a lot of this material has been overlooked to date. And Ryan asked Shiafra about reading fiction to unearth unwritten history. You were talking to Lucy Worsley, the historian here on the show recently about Agatha Christie. And although this is, a, this is not a great connection between the two, but the point I'm making is that she had to read Christie's fiction to try and learn about her own truth, uh, her own story. And in much the same way, you're doing the same or have can do the same with fiction written by Civil War veterans with a view to try and get to some class of truth of the reality. Absolutely. And what's interesting here is even at the time, 
and this is in the 1930s, it was acknowledged um, by um, Desmond Ryan, who was a really interesting writer and historian in his own um, right. But he actually wrote about the fact that the, the most powerful writings to come out of the Civil War were some of the fictional writings. Yet they haven't been addressed. Um, so two of the examples he 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 mentions are, is one uh, a novel that was published in 1934, um, by uh, Frank Carthy, who would have been on the anti-treaty side, and he writes a full novel that was highly uh, regarded at the time. He won a Taunton Literary Prize, and essentially the novel is his own experience in this mm. very thin veil of fiction. And there's also another one from. There's so many, but another one from the, the pro-treaty side, a free state soldier, a Dubliner called Jackets Green. And that was actually censored because he refers to the soldiers and going to the battles in Dublin and that didn't really tie up. And he spent the rest of his life trying to tell his story. And again, that idea, not only that you want to tell your story, but you want to be listened to and to t- be taken seriously. And I think that was what was missing in, in a lot of these cases. Um, and again, the women's writing comes up in all of these interest, uh, interesting genres. The, the uh, Jackets Green by Patrick Malloy, that's, that was published in, in 1936, as I understand it. And, and uh, you, you haven't seen an original copy of that, have you? That's something... Um, so I have the original copy, um, but it's really hard to get. Well, I don't have it myself. It's in the National Library. Yes. So I've read the read the novel in the National Library. So if anyone else wants to read it, you can go and get it in the National Library. Uh, you won't get it online or anything. Um, but I've never been able to actually get get an original copy of the the, the front cover of it. And to antiquarian the, the, bookshops um, all around the country going straight to their shelves to find it now and hopefully uh, <laughs> yeah. dig a copy up for you for Christmas. The ultimate uh, nerd Christmas oh, yeah, present. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me let me ask you about um, uh, wounds. You've you've written about this. Uh, you wrote a book called Spiritual Wounds: Trauma, Testimony, and the Irish Civil War. And with that in mind, I wanted to ask you about how that works because you've got political wounds which as we know we're are still healing you've the spiritual wounds of a nation which uh, are maybe not a, a, overly discussed uh, you've got wounds in villages and towns and cities that are still being talked about and then you have them even more locally within families and yet talking about trauma in the 1920s and 30s or even 40s wasn't really the done thing mm. So talk to me a bit yeah. about that, yeah. Yeah, um, I actually, um, I think it was probably addressed more than we realised. Okay. Um, and that's one of the things that came came up. But you're right, the language of trauma didn't exist. So the, the term trauma didn't really come into to, um, discourse until the 1960s. And then PTSD as a diagnosis um, is introduced in 1980. But if we go back to the 1920s, these revolutions actually had very sophisticated ideas of, of, I suppose, the psychological legacies of warfare. So they're actually reading Freud and they're engaging with ideas around shell shock in the aftermath mm. of the First World War and, and nervous conditions and so on. Um, and there's other language, I suppose, unspeakable, um, that uh, civil war was unspeakably vile. Um, actually, your own grandfather, Todd Andrews, he refers to um, the fact that the civil war leaves a, a, um, a, a scar and how it was unhealed until the, the um, Second World War. So it's still, it's that idea of psychological wounding without the contemporary language of trauma because that, that, that is something that has, has come more recently. And I think that's another thing to say that trauma, um, in a way, it's a, a, social, um, a social constructed uh, concept. It's also quite political who, whose trauma is recognised with so changes um, from, from generation to the next, what we perceive to be valid as a, as a certain type of trauma. So maybe that's really what, what it comes to. What, 
trauma was validated within society mm -hmm. in the 1920s and 30s is, is maybe what's, what's different, even though they had the understandings of it. And absolutely, there wasn't the same acceptance of these kind of nervous conditions, um, particularly among wartime veterans. And um, we have to remember that there is an emphasis here on the revolutionary period and how enlightening it was and how independence was achieved and the, the, the I suppose, the, the, the virtues of the new state. People didn't want to be dwelling on, I suppose, some of the, the wartime casualties or some of these difficulties. Um, and it was also very gendered trauma. And so through the language of nerves was seen as something that women suffered. It wasn't a ma mm. manly thing whatsoever. And mm. um, so even the word hysteria actually comes from the Greek word for womb. And uh, one of the things that struck me um, when I was working on, on the pension files is that I noticed again and again that women were being sent to a gynecologist in Dublin when they were claiming for any kind of um, nervous conditions, but also other illnesses. Um, so they're being sent to Seamus Vakali, who, who himself was a Belfast IRA veteran. Um, and there was actually a policy of sending women to a gynecologist if they were seen to be suffering from any kind of nervous conditions, that these ladies' doctors were seen to be the people who could address these nervous exhaustion and the other conditions like this. So a very strong connection there between women's health and these nervous conditions. So not something that men, I suppose, were, were likely to yes. um, to be open about. Um, but there definitely were cases where, where um, some of these revolutionaries suffered really quite severely on account of, of um, their activities. But that's not, not to say that they all did either. And I think that's another thing to, to think about, that these experiences affect people in so many different ways. There isn't a one-size-fits-all model for any of this. Um, and I, what's interesting, I think, is the fact that people respond so differently to their experiences. So some people will prefer not to speak about it or they might speak about it to their children, but they'll speak about it to their contemporaries or they might actually decide they want to speak about it a lot and process it and write about it and share it with the entire country by publishing a testimony. Um, and th those silence breakers, I suppose, are the people that I'm really interested in because they really are remarkable that they aren't endeavoured to not only process their experience and write about it, but actually to throw it into the public arena. And often they were criticised, you know, that mm. that wasn't an easy thing to do. And um, some of these were censored. There's cases of excommunication. There's cases of very profound criticism from the literary elite, for example. So I'm looking at revolutionaries who weren't necessarily um, professional writers but they're writing about their own experiences through through fiction and oftentimes the, the literary journals could be quite harsh because this wasn't seen as highbrow literature at all so they've fallen through the cracks both of historical study because they're seen as i suppose not empirical historical sources and then also and um, they've fallen through through the cracks of literary studies because they aren't represented in the canon of irish literature dr shiafra aiken from the ryan tuberty show And in the morning, a Christmas time food for thought on Today with Claire Byrne. And it was Italian restaurant Rosa Madre's owner, Luca Di Marzio. Now, we, we start by asking people if they're a foodie, but we know that you're a foodie. <laughs> but when did the passion first begin for food? Does it just come with being Italian? Well, I guess, yeah, that's a part of it for sure. But, uh, you know, I had to step up the game when I first opened my business, you know. So that was um, maybe 12 years ago when I started to be really full on. But, um, yeah, the, the, I had the background as a foodie since uh, since day one, I would yeah. say, you know. This is pretty much done by, you know, the culture of Italian culture and my family. It just know? happens. And was the food very complicated and fancy at home when you were small or was it simple food? 
simple food, Claire, absolutely. So uh, I think I had the first time truffle when I was uh, um, outside Italy. <laughs> so in a fancy restaurant, I think in London, you know, when I was working there. But my mom never got me truffle, you know. So um, at the time when uh, family dinner or lunch, it would be pasta with sugo. Sugo is uh, tomato sauce. So that would be uh, on daily basis, you know. And usually when you are uh, sick with fever, uh, you don't feel well, it would be pasta with uh, butter and parmesan, you know. So oh, lovely. Very simple. So that will be the, mm-hmm. the simple cooking. But that means you learn very young how to make the simple things. You know, yeah. it sounds so easy, but to fry an onion off, to fry the bacon off, to cook the pasta properly. You clearly learned those things at a very young age, did you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That I mean, this is the story of my family. Was My mom was a teacher, so she would be... She would be busy in the afternoon looking after uh, other kids, you know, but um, she was uh, making sure that my grandmother, she was living uh, just upstairs. So she was keeping an eye on us and sometimes cooking. But by the age of uh, my brother was 14 and I was already 12. So we decided to step up the game and uh, we were fed up with the with the frozen food. You know, we, we started to cook. Uh, the first sauce was uh, a matriciana sauce. So we were in love for that sauce, which is typical uh, Roman uh, sauce with pecorino and guanciale so i remember you know many times burning the oil and uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah kind of uh, we mastered after after a while and it was really really nice to have <laughs> <laughs> to master that that one so you could you could have it when you wanted and now that you're running a restaurant is it harder to cook at home or do you still cook for your family when you're not working I do I do cooking and I love to cook uh, pasta and seafood sometimes because my wife she loves to eat uh, fish at home so sometimes I treat herself and I cook some cod with uh, simple ingredients that could be tomatoes or the red pepper or uh, chickpeas things like that you know very simple but the the thing I enjoy the most Claire which is sounds strange by an Italian guy is uh, to cook all chicken for the family <laughs> <laughs> to cook so, a chicken yeah to cook chicken all chicken you know the one that you put in the oven and you wait uh, one hour or yep. half an hour and you just have a glass of wine or a nice Guinness and uh, you know you just wait in front of the television and then when it's ready everybody from different rooms appears to the table and you start to eat all together Together. So this a is big, just magical. A, a big whole roast chicken. You're becoming very Irish now yeah, because we, we all love that here. And what do you serve with that? Ah, you know, mixed vegetables. You know, it could be this period. I love broccoli and, um, you know, kale as well. We did last time. Um, you know, the Irish vegetables, typical Irish vegetables. So I really like, of and, course, and potato, potato. But, you know, potato, I kind of keep it away from me. You know, I still, still on diet, Claire. You know, I, I try to be good, you know. But you eat pasta. Yeah, yeah, but I treat myself with pasta from, uh, you know, my wife, she makes fresh pasta. So sometimes we have to keep, uh, you know, quality control all the time. So I I usually taste pasta and, um, you know, I keep it as a treat. And Claire asked Luca about his Christmas traditions. And at Christmas time then, what what are Mm. you most looking forward to on the food front for Christmas? Well, um, in Christmas time, I was thinking about that, you know, it's, um, we gonna, I'm going to have my mom coming here, you know, on the, on the 20th of December. So that, uh, that would be really, really nice for us to have, uh, you know, at least one, uh, the lunch on 25th to all together. 
But I was thinking that I'm I'm getting really jealous of the of the Irish cooking, you know, because I think it's a it's a great technique, you know, to do the to do the ham roasted ham, you know, in the oven, you know, because that would allow you to have so much time, you know, just put you know the ham in the oven and wait with your parents, you know, have a glass of wine, have a laugh, have a listen a bit of music, or you can even go to the pub and come back, <laughs> you know. And so I love that, but unfortunately, the Italian um, culture, the Italian, uh, we're gonna have to eat lots of seafood. So there will be oysters to open, clams to cook, and then another pot. We're gonna have the spaghetti with seafood. Then my mom is gonna cook lasagna. So it's gonna be so much pressure, which I really don't look for. I don't even know if I'm gonna have a glass of wine. Oh, listen, I wish people could see you throwing your eyes up to heaven when you were saying, oh, we have to cook the clams and we have to cook this, that, and the other. So it's a lot of work. And lots of pans to to wash after. So one day I I tell you I'm gonna cook that roast ham, you know, and oh, I'm gonna have so a nice. pint of Guinness and pub, and <laughs> I'm gonna do that. And so. the best thing is is that you can boil it the day before. I didn't and, know that. And, and, then you, and then you put your breadcrumbs and your lovely glaze on it, and then you can just bake it for forty minutes or Imagine so. You, you know, guys, you, you guys are so smart with that. You know, you're really master. But you think your mother wouldn't accept any of these um, Irish traditions? She wants her Italian Christmas lunch. There is only one way to find out, you know, so <laughs> yeah. I think next year she's going to have no choice. <laughs> but isn't it good that she's going to come here and still she's going to cook for you, though? She's making the Christmas lasagna, you said. Yes, yes, I already, because my wife, she's going she's gonna to help her and I heard there's going to be lasagna on the way. So. Yeah, and uh, does she, is she critical of you with your cooking? Does she look and go, Luca, you need Yeah, to... yeah, she still does. I say, mom, because, you know, she, she thinks that uh, her recipe, I'm doing the same recipe in the restaurant, you know, but I said, mom, I have professional chefs that they well paid and they learn you know from the best <laughs> so you're not taking uh, anymore your uh, recipes over here you know and she gets really upset with that you know so, so christmas then is all about seafood really is it it's mm. not about meat so much i think in italy by religious uh, point of view is uh, you have to eat seafood on the um, on christmas period so we have no choice you know obviously in the beginning it was uh, you wouldn't be spoiled by oysters and uh, Dublin Bay prawns. I think that I see now, you know, obviously before it was uh, the most exotic part of the of the of the dinner would be smoked salmon. I remember any member of the family that would go abroad in Europe, it would come back with some uh, smoked salmon and everybody was like, whoa, man, I must be expensive. Where did you get that? You know, because in Italy it wasn't uh, smoked salmon. I guess here you are well used to that, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was still, it's probably more common now. I think when we were growing up, Mm. it was considered to be something that was quite luxurious and now people have access to it uh, a little more readily. So your last meal then, finally, Luca, if I was to say to you, what are you going to have for your last meal starter main course dessert okay okay so no i love crab as i said many times for me the best starter it would be crab irish crab um and yeah that would be pretty much my starter then as a main course uh, as much i love um, lobster but i would do a surf and turf just so nobody gets offended (laughs) so we're gonna have some lobster and some beef fillet together you know and uh, so a small Perfect fillet steak. Yeah, your fillet lobster. steak with some lobster and some lovely demi glaze sauce, which I love. Is like a veal juice, oh, lovely, and maybe some pepper sauce just in case, you know, just to have them all, you know. And, <laughs> and potatoes. Said, Listen, we're getting you potatoes <laughs> with this. That. Yeah, maybe some mashed potatoes yeah. with some truffle just to keep it going, you know. Luca Demarzio from today with Claire Byrne. 
And in the afternoon, Rossa called Joe about a slip at the weekend. What happened? What, five o'clock this morning? No, Friday actually. Um, oh, Friday, okay. So I didn't have the fog that we have this morning. No, I go out for a walk uh, most, nearly every morning about five. Did that on Friday. And uh, it was cold and frosty, crunchy snow. But it was fairly manageable. And then I went out a bit later and the dew point had changed and it became uh, a bit of an, an ice rink. And I uh, had, had a few incidents going down to Blackrock Village. In Dublin. And, and, and what, you, you slipped. Where did you slip and what time did you yeah, slip? Yeah, the bottom of uh, George's Avenue and then down in front of the HSE building uh, going into Blackrock Village. There was a, on the shadow part, there was ice there. And coming back, I slipped. And when I slipped on the same different ice, I couldn't get up. And oh, uh, Greg fell in a blue van waiting for the lights to get out. Volunteered to come and help me up, you know, and uh, get me back upright. And uh, I was very grateful to him, but I didn't thank him enough. And the whole reason for calling you Friday was uh, a guy made his, uh, his job to come out and help me, got me upright, and two other people came and talked to me, and I forgot to thank him. And I was uh, remiss of that. It was my biggest headache in the end. And you, it was a bad fall, was it, Rosser? Yeah, I've got a bit, but it's a bit of bruising on the, on the right hip. It's fine. There's no breakage or anything that I know enough. But I'd be a bit sore. And, and was it was it on a footpath? Yeah, know. coming off the. Okay. If you come up, if you go out of the village and crossing the place beside Frascati, it's kind of a dual carriageway, two lanes. You come off the path and across the cycle lane, there was ice there, and the ice hadn't been cleared. I suppose it was very early in the mm-hmm. day. And that's where okay. it was. And you can't see black ice. You have, the great, then, you, have a, you have a great phrase in your communication with it. You said, I felt like one of those tortoises yeah. lying on my back in the Galapagos Islands yeah. and, and, and I couldn't get up. Was that what it, what it was like? Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, apart from the, the humbling part, you just can't control yourself because you're the wrong way up. And uh, because I had a stroke a year ago, I'm less uh, wow. able than I was. So definitely, uh, that's the vision I had in my head as I was lying there for a few seconds. Was, yeah, so one of those torches. And, and the driver of the blue van, he was at the lights. This was on the George's Avenue, intersecting the Rock Road yeah, and Black Rock and Dublin. To go town, yeah. just, and just before the Frascati Centre there. And he saw me and said, Do you need a hand? And I, I said, Oh, it'd be great if you could. And he hopped out. Good lad. And got me upright. And uh, then two other people approached me. And obviously, he ran away to get out of the way. And I forgot to, to thank him because I wouldn't be upright still. And have you any other memory of the van or of him? Was he? No, it was just a blue van. Was, I think it was road was on it. Uh, I have no. Uh, no, I wasn't doing my police inquiry. I wasn't. Uh, okay, okay. That <laughs> Fair play. That's Rasa on the live line with Joe Duffy. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.